Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26, where Paul read for us earlier. Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 26, but a majority of our study is going to be the counterpart in Matthew's account. Uh, We'll learn some things I think maybe you've never seen or heard before. So let's begin with verse 20, Luke 6. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and they and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to them, and when all men speak well of you, for so did their father to the false prophets. This morning, uh, we will look at the contrast between the Sermon on the Mount that we just read here in um, Luke, and we will contrast it with the one that we find in uh, Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we'll see that there's similarities, and yet um, it's actually given in two different places. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 6, says he came down with them and stood on a level place. Um, this is not the same um, Beatitudes, at least it's not the same location. This one's on the plain. And we'll clearly see that the one in Matthew was on a mount. Um, that's in Mark 5. Uh, the remarkable thing about the sermon in Luke is it's... Um, dissimilarities to the sermon in Matthew's. There are, for instance, there's omissions, there's certain inclusions, there's blessings and woes, attitudes and judgment. As we look at our text, if we would just look at verses 20 through 23, what we've just read, um, up to this point, the content of the Sermon on the Plain is similar to Matthew's account on the Mount. The Lord gave the same teaching in many places, but in different forms. Beginning with verse 24, a new thought is introduced. We will come back to our main text in Luke chapter 6, but first let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and actually go through the Sermon on the Mount as given from Matthew's perspective and how he recorded it. So that would be... Matthew chapter 5, this is a great manifesto of the kingdom of God, the Sermon on the Mount, versus the Sermon on the Plain. It was addressed to the disciples, not to the multitudes. So what we are about to read here is directed specifically to those men who he had just chosen. And um, let me say this a couple times during the message this morning. This is so profound. It's such a bombshell to what they were used to hearing about what it means to be righteous and what it means, if you want to use the word or term, religious. It's profound. It's earth-shattering. This is a bombshell beyond describing. Uh, We take it for granted because we've we've read it many, many times. But remember, this is the first time anyone has ever spoken like this And it so contradicts everything they ever understood about religion because of the teaching primarily of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount declares to us what we are through the grace of God working in our lives. And because of what we are, what our relationship to the law is, for this reason the Sermon of the Mount needs to be taken in context the first section, the Beatitudes, and if you're taking notes, that will be uh, verse 3 down through verse um, 
12, 11 and 12, uh, verses 3 through 16 here also find the Beatitudes are going to list seven different characteristics that make up our character, or at least should make up a Christian's character. Now, the eighth Beatitude deals with the reaction of the world to these seven traits that precede it. So we, talking about the Beatitudes, seven are going to pertain primarily to who we are and what makes us different. And the eighth one is going to be the response of how the world (laughs) reacts to us becoming what's laid out here. Um, These characteristics are uh, interrelated, they're progressive. The Beatitudes are not natural characteristics, and they actually create a sharp distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian in the things that they admire and the things that they seek. So with that little bit of an introduction, we see in verse one, in seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now I want to point this out a couple times because the style in which the Lord presents his teaching, I want to be able to contrast and what we see going on in the world today and how God's word is being communicated and not communicated. Remember when we were here on Wednesday night, the crowds were so big that he had to get into Peter's boat and what did he do when he got in? Well, he sat down. And I, I think it sort of sat everybody down as far as them being able to open up. Um, there's a proverb that says, a wise man draws out counsel like a deep well. In other words, a wise man knows how to reach deep into a person and draw things out. And I believe if, oh, I'd love to have seen the Lord give the Beatitudes and how he drew things out, just like the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan, he was a Jew. Jews and Samaritans hate each other. Well, she goes from calling him a Jew to a prophet to the Messiah. Now, that's quite a transformation in a very short period of time, how he did it. Well, he drew it out of her. And that's a proverb. A wise man draws out water like counsel. He's able to to bring it out. And I see that in the nature here where the Lord sat down. And in sitting down, and sort of set the people and the sheep at a place where, okay, I'm not on edge. I'm (laughs) I'm open and I feel more relaxed because he is. So we find, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So here's our first one of the seven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me just stop here and remind you that in Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. And he's gonna contrast that in a physical sense with money, where here, it's clearly about the uh, nature of our soul. So there's two differences right there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I have memories, this is not in my notes, but um, a lot of what I've gleaned from this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount comes from a, one of the first trips in um, 1981 we had with Pastor Chuck, uh, pastors only. And um, I will never forget to this day uh, Chuck teaching on the Beatitudes, on uh, uh, what, there's a traditional place there that they call them on the Beatitudes. And um, I just remember being so blown away that uh, the insight that the Lord had given Chuck in that, and I'm gleaning a lot of that this morning from him. Blessed in the Greek means, oh, how happy. True happiness is a byproduct of a right relationship with God and cannot be discovered by direct pursuit. The first three Beatitudes have to do with our response to the revelation of God. This first characteristic of the child of God is a foundation now that God can build upon. God cannot build upon the foundation of pride, 
self-will, or our own ambition. God's process is usually that of emptying before filling. I like to say breaking before building up. A man who is truly poor in spirit will not be admired by the world. Poor in spirit indicates a willingness to surrender to the authority and control of God so that he might govern our lives. We will not be making demands because we're unworthy and undeserving. Poverty of spirit is a consciousness, a consciousness of our own sinfulness and spiritual poverty. The way to happiness is poverty of spirit. Let me give you an example of this. We'll be going there a couple times. Flip over to the book of Romans chapter seven. This awareness, this consciousness of the person who is poor in spirit, he's aware of something about himself. He's, uh, we as creatures are, um, have been given the ability by the Lord to self Evaluate. As Paul, in writing in Romans 7 about his own spiritual walk, um, let's pick it up in verse, chapter 7, verse 15. And this is Paul, aware of his own unworthiness. He says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that is in me that is in my flesh. Here's that self-awareness, that consciousness, that in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present, spirit is willing, is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I hate to do, that I practice. So let's go back to the poor in spirit. Who is the one who's blessed? The man who is blessed and poor in spirit is simply agreeing with what God tells us about ourselves all along that we're sold under sin, we're all guilty, and even though we have to agree with the law, the law is good, nothing wrong with the law. It's just that we can't do it. And this is, this is a, a blessed state that a person comes to when you come to that awareness. Of course, the flip side of that would be arrogance and pride, and you know, I can pull this thing off by myself. Poor in spirit is just, the opposite. It says, for theirs, let's go on, part B, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, in the New Testament, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably. The kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over the whole universe, of which the kingdom of heaven is a part. But also, the kingdom of heaven has come to those who have submitted themselves to Jesus to be governed by him. So the kingdom of heaven, as it says, dwells within you. You are, we are told, we are the temple of God. All right, that's the first one. Let's move on to the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the word mourn in the Greek is the most intensive kind of mourning. It was used when Jacob thought that his son Joseph was dead. He'd been gone for so long. And his brothers brought back his garment that was covered with blood. And this was, of course, um, one of two children that um, um, he had with Rachel. Um, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A lot of times people don't acknowledge that about the Lord, that he was always uh, always up and always happy. No, the Bible says in Isaiah, he was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. All of a sudden, he's getting our attention because we like to say it's sort of hitting home. 
because we know that that's true for us also. Um, There are three interpretations for mourning. One, a very bitter, deep sorrow for the loss of a loved one, or a deep, abiding sorrow for an impairing affliction resulting in a quality of character that can only be developed by suffering. Men's prayer yesterday was brought to my attention um, that um, a a friend of mine, I was better friends with his older brother, um, the Haifman family. Gary Haifman was probably my closest friend when I was a senior in high school, and he passed on. And then I found out yesterday that a week ago yesterday, Mark died. Some of you may have known them. But it sort of messed up my day because that's all I could think of. And um, because you go down memory lane, I remember talking to the Lord about him. I had to text my friend Pat and said, do you remember Mark? And uh, was there any, um, um, did he ever live with us? And I was trying to bring all these memories back and I just couldn't, I couldn't it's just too many years ago, we're talking the early 70s. And, uh, but it threw off my timing. And um, I was in a state where my mind wasn't in a study. And to be honest with you, I had to get up at 4.30 this morning to finish this Bible study. <laughs> but I'm only trying to use an example that this is a reality, what happens when you are grieved over something. Of course, the first thought that comes to mind, where's he at with the Lord? And all these, all these thoughts that go, go through your head. Number two, mourning over the condition of the world and having a feeling of helplessness to do anything about it. When Jesus mourned over Jerusalem, he was grieving over the sin of the world. He only grieved twice, tears twice, but once, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you under my wing like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. So what did that bring about? Well, when you're rejected, how do you feel? You grieved, especially when you want to gather in and you have the opposite reaction. As we see lawlessness abounding, getting worse day after day, I'm not happy clappy about that. It grieves me. I mourn over it as we see our world spiraling, not for the better, it's for the worse. The Lord used interesting terminology, in case I don't bring it up later, about the days in which we live. I don't see revival. I see survival. That's what I'd put in there. For the true born-again believer, the Lord says, he that endures to the end. I don't see a roller coaster ride smoothly getting to where we're going. It's an endurance. We pray for perseverance. We pray not to compromise with what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And yet, what do we see in our world? Just the opposite. It's going just in the opposite direction. So we we mourn for um, the sin and the lawlessness. One of the signs of the last days, lawlessness and the love of many growing cold. Number three, mourning over our own sinful state. Being poor in spirit creates a mourning over our own shortcomings and sin. Back to Romans 7. We were there, but I want to go back there and finish it. After Paul did a self-evaluation of being poor in spirit, he realizes that what he wants to do, he's not doing, and what he doesn't want to do, that's what he does. Mourning over our sinful state, being poor in spirit, creates a mourning over our own shortcomings and sins. Yet we're comforted as God cleanses us of our unrighteousness. So in verse 24, here's Paul's conclusion about his own assessment of himself. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He realizes his situation, but then he realizes that he's not part of the equation to have God's righteousness. He's removed from it. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And the answer to um, where it says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, um, we find 
it says, for they shall be comforted. Well, how can I be comforted when I realize all the bad things that dwell inside of me and you? And here's, what, here's one of those verses you want to underline. This is, this is a keeper. Especially if you're prone to listen to the accusations. Isn't that what, what the Bible calls the devil? The accuser of the brethren? And you mess up and he's on your shoulder. You call yourself a Christian. How can you call yourself a Christian? Well, by reading Romans 8 verse 1. That's all. It says, there is therefore... Whenever there's a therefore, what do we say? What's it there for? (laughs) Well, it is therefore, therefore, because of Paul's situation. I can't pull it off, but I thank God. I'm a a wretch, but I thank God Jesus did. Therefore, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, I can be comforted by that. And so... As we look at um, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. I'm comforted by the word of God, that he's got a plan. Even when it comes to the tribulation and all the things, all the hell that's gonna break loose on this world, both times in 1 Thessalonians 4 talking about the rapture and 1 Thessalonians 5 talking about the rapture in the last days, the last verse says this, therefore comfort one another with these words. Good place for an amen. I can find comfort in that God's got a plan, even though I know there's a whole lot of bad stuff still coming down the line. Yet God's purpose and plan is he's not appointed us to wrath, and I don't expect my honeymoon to be anywhere in the tribulation period. Another good place for an amen. So I, take, I can take comfort in that. Let's go on to the next one. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we realize the truth about ourselves, our attitude toward others is one of meekness. Meekness is related to lowliness in a good sense, gentleness, the learning of the word of God. We are to seek meekness. Uh, In the Greek, the word for meek means a happy medium between two extremes. Interesting. Meekness is moderation. A meek person can have anger when others are treated unjustly, but not be angry when he is unjustly treated. Another meaning for meek is to domesticate a wild animal. A God-controlled life is meekness. The Jews did not expect their Messiah to be meek. They weren't expecting him to come humbly riding on a donkey. No, they thought the kingdom was coming, so the way when he comes at the second coming, it is on a white stallion. And he does have a sword. And he will come as a warrior of warriors, king of kings and lord of lords. But not this time. They weren't expecting this. Uh, They were not expecting a meek, mild-mannered king. They were expecting somebody that was going to take the Roman Empire off their shoulders. Uh, They were anticipating him to overthrow the Roman government by force. Meekness is having others see the truth about ourselves and giving honors to others. We have examples of men in the Bible that God chooses. And this is a really twist too. Remember, God has chosen the foolish things of of, uh, this world to confound the wise, the ones with all the PhDs and theological degrees behind them isn't necessarily the ones that the Lord's looking for. He didn't go to the theological seminary where the Pharisees were in Jerusalem to pick his disciples. No, he went to Galilee, got some stinky fishermen. (laughs) And they had had an attitude. The, the, The thing about Galileans were they had a reputation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of... Uh, that territory, they talked funny up in Galilee. And um, yet, God chose Abraham for his humility. Moses, he says, don't send me, I can't, I can't talk. He says, I stammer, I stutter. You better pick Aaron here, he's a good communicator. No, he picked, he picked Moses. And of course, Paul went from killing and hunting down Christians 
to um, um, being the kind of man that we read about in Romans 7. And of course, the Lord himself taking on the role where he says, come and learn of me because I'm meek and lowly in heart. Come unto me, you'll find rest for your souls. In reality, a meek person has already inherited the earth because he's a satisfied person. A meek person has learned that happiness does not lie in possessions. Ooh, that's a good place to stop. Anybody want to give me an amen on that one? By all you want to. <laughs> I think it was John. I was listening to John when Judy and I were in Arizona on a Sunday morning, or maybe it was Billy Graham we were watching. And they made the comment about uh, when you die, you ain't taking anything with you. And then he said, I've never seen a hearse yet with a U-Haul trailer behind it. <laughs> No, it stays. So a meek person has learned that happiness doesn't lie in what he possesses, but in a relationship with God. In the coming kingdom, when Jesus reigns, the meek will reign with him. For we read, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's go on to the fourth one. The fourth one Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, the first three Beatitudes were the emptying process. Now we come to uh, seek for an answer to our helplessness. In the Greek, this verse denotes one of desiring, not just a portion, but all of the righteousness of God. What I'm about to say next is extremely important in times in which we live. The purpose of the church isn't to take care of symptoms, such as starvation and crime, but to bring the gospel to men so that they will be brought into a position of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Okay, what I said here, what we see happening in the church today is what I call a social gospel. And there's leaders in that, and when we get towards the end of this thing, I am going to name names, because they've left off the gospel completely and become social organizations, primary purpose just to feed the poor. Should we feed the poor? Absolutely. That's why we had the brat fly, and you guys that were a part of it yesterday. It should be a byproduct of our relationship with the Lord, but it should never, ever even come anywhere close to our primary goal, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And um, that has to be um, uh, the most important. Righteousness cannot be achieved in our own strength. It is a standing before God. God has imputed to us righteousness because we believe in Jesus Christ and there are two types of righteousness. Um, because I'd like you, you guys to, I just like your Bible pages turning. <laughs> and because I like that, you know this because I quote it all the time, but let's turn to it and um, just have this hammered in. Second Corinthians 5, you know it well, but let's turn to it. Second Corinthians 5. Of the law, which is the best, leads to self-righteousness, which results in judging others. But the righteousness given by God through believing in Jesus Christ, this is the righteousness of Christ. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. He took my sin, but then he gave me his righteousness. I'm righteous because of what Jesus did. We cannot improve in any way, shape, or form upon this righteousness. And it leads us, the byproduct of this is when you realize what he's done for you, there should be a natural, what I like to call, attitude of gratitude. Just being thankful. Lord, there's no other way that this could happen unless you did that. And that should create a gratefulness in our heart. Righteousness is being right with God and our fellow man. We're not to hunger and thirst after happiness, but after righteousness. Blessed is a man 
not who is righteous, but who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. It isn't necessarily righteousness itself that brings happiness. The uh, 6B part here, we shall be filled with righteousness. So to hunger and thirst after it, that comes about when you're aware that he gave you his righteousness and he took our sins. So that brings, a, that brings about in the only way a man can be righteous. Let's go on to the fifth one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I like this. It's a good one to memorize as um, we think about um, uh, justice and mercy and grace and the difference between the three. Justice is getting what we deserve. So you're going 40 and a 25, you get pulled over and the cop gives you a ticket. That's justice, you broke the law. Mercy on the other hand is not getting what we deserve. Okay, you get pulled over doing 40 and the officer looks at you and says, I'm gonna let you off with a warning this time. That is mercy. He could have given you a ticket but grace is getting what we don't deserve. So the, the three, grace is getting what we deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve. After being filled, we become, we become the next three beatitudes. Because we have received the mercy of God through repentance, we can be merciful. If we aren't merciful, we haven't actually received God's mercy. Those who have received forgiveness, well, they show forgiveness. The Greek word for mercy has a root in the Hebrew word meaning to get inside someone else's skin. That brings me back to that proverb that the Lord did with the woman at the well. He went inside of her and drew it out of her. This means that you can totally identify with what he's seeing, thinking, and feeling. God came into the skin of man through Christ to be able to identify with us. Sympathy is to suffer together or to experience together the pains and the sufferings of others. Bible says we rejoice with those that rejoice. Dave, you're getting old. But you can rejoice with me because mine was last week. And I'm getting old. (laughs) I saw that. You'll have to tell me about that one later. The gospel places the emphasis on on what we are, not what we're doing. And so we find the Beatitudes. Got to be emptied out first before you can be filled back up. It's a breaking down process. It's a clearing out. So the Beatitudes are like beacon lights that call us to self-examination. If we're merciful, then others will be merciful to us. Now there's another good place for an amen. You're gonna re-put your soul. You show uh, you've gone through something, you've experienced something, you know what it feels like. So now you go out of your way. Actually seek that person out. Say, hey man, I know what you're going through. Been there, done that. I just want you to know I'm here for you. If I can do anything, help, let me know. If you show mercy, Mercy will be given back to you. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure here refers to a purity that is in the res- uh, as a result of a washing. The heart is the center of one's being, the throne of the spirit. The Pharisees were concerned with the outward observation of righteousness. God is concerned with the inner heart. Doesn't it say that man looks on the outward, but God looks at the heart? That's how David was chosen. The heart needs to be cleansed. Being pure in heart can only be a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, I might add here that we would have this happen quicker and sooner than 
We want it in our timing, but the Lord has his own timing. And his own timing is always longer than what I want it to be. So this cleansing process, being pure in heart, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian has a renewed heart and a renewed body. Being born again, old things pass away, all things become new. And as a result of that, someday, we can see God in his creation, uh, in the events in history, in our daily circumstances. In the future, there actually is coming a time where we're going to see him, as it says, 1 Corinthians 13, but then face to face. There's a day coming, and my favorite verse in the Bible, Revelation 22.4, is seeing the face of the Father. It's beyond comprehension. But we sang about it this morning in one of our first songs, that we're gonna see him. So, blessed are the pure in heart, Uh, they will uh, someday, because we're born again, see the Lord. Now, the seventh here, and the last of the blesseds uh, of the Beatitudes, tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Uh, the Jews were longing for the Messiah to lead them in war, to conquer all Gentiles and to, to rule the world. Peace is more than a passive, passive existence. It is a very positive state of good. A peacemaker is more than one who stops quarrels. He brings good into other people's lives. A peacemaker might become involved in a great conflict as long as the forces of evil prevail. There is no way to have peace except by destroying them. Peacemakers deal with the corrupt issues so that there can be a true state of peace. Jesus was fighting against the corrupt religious system and for peace between man and God. Real peace can never be found in a compromise with evil. There can never be a peaceful coexistence with sin. Peacemakers bring others to God. Man's basic problem is that he has to be reconciled to God. Um, An example of this would have been Barnabas. He was known, um, which means son of consolation, uh, as a peacemaker, a guy who could actually bring people together. And that was known about Barnabas. So 9b says, the last part, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. Called means chosen. Children means son. This actually should say, they shall be chosen as sons of God. God initiated peace with man. We should have the same desire. When Jesus comes again to this earth, he will be called the Prince of Peace. Even within our lives, God will never make a pact with sin. Our sins need to be dealt with. And this is that ongoing process. Paul And Paul reassures us, don't think that you're ever going to attain to it. You're never gonna attain it until we are out of this body. Another good place for amen. How come? Because my flesh and the Holy Spirit live in the same building. And it says they're at war 24-7. And the one that wins is the one that you're feeding. It's as simple as that. The one that wins is the one that you feed. You have to die to one and live for the other. All right, now on the eighth, it sort of changes because um, we see the consequences of the first seven Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because you become this person you can expect not a pat on the back but more of a kick in the butt by people who don't like you actually Uh, for righteousness sakes for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kind of evil falsely against you for my name's sake rejoice Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, and so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One of, I think, the most amazing stories in the Bible is Paul and Silas getting thrown in jail with the Philippian jailer. They were beat up badly. 
And yet at midnight, they were heard. All the other prisoners were hearing them. They were singing worship songs. Um, And it was a witness that they did exactly this here. They were persecuted and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer in the same way that the Lord, the Lord did. That's, that's Matthew's account. Now we need to go back to Luke. Luke's won't be as long because it's short and different. And that's one of the things I want you to, to glean. These are two different, even though there are similarities, they're two, they were given in two different places. And um, there are omissions, like the first one, blessed are the poor. We're talking about physical money right now, but not in Matthew's. Matthew's was blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is given on a plane, and um, uh, verses 20 through 23 would be similar. Um, But as we get to verse 24, um, we go from blessed are you, now if you look at verse 24, to woe to you. So we find in, in uh, Luke's account, let's pick it up, verses uh, 24 through 26. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did to the fathers of the false prophets. I think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Nothing happy about Jeremiah. He had one message. You guys gone too far, worshiped other gods. The Lord's gonna take you into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And then you get, there's no getting around it. The false prophets on the other hand and says, don't listen to Jeremiah, throw him in the pit. Everything's gonna be fine. The temple being destroyed, inconceivable, It'll never happened. And the people loved it. People loved that message. We're not gonna be brought into judgment. Jeremiah says, you're gonna be brought into judgment. And you're gonna be there for 70 full years. Well, who was right? <laughs> History speaks for itself. Uh, the children of Israel were 70 years just like Jeremiah. Uh, They wanted to kill Jeremiah. And um, his message was not a popular one at all. Now, when we go from the blessings to the woes, again, I want to emphasize, this is a major bombshell. Um, This went against everything they ever thought or were taught in religion, especially by the scribes and the Pharisees. We find that the false prophet is, is uh, you know, they're looked up to in the world in which we live today. And if we will say the right things, the world will pay him well. The Lord Jesus makes it clear, however, that he needed, didn't need that, nothing to pay him. The false prophets have become popular with the world but he will be um, notorious with God. He may have a lot of fun on earth, but he will uh, cause heaven to weep. He may be well fed, but he will have a starved soul. Very little is said today about the godless rich. The Lord had a great deal to say about the godless rich in scripture. Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now one of the dangers that could happen today in the church is this false doctrine of the prosperity teachers. Turn with me to Revelation chapter three. Somebody last week cornered me afterwards and asked me questions about do I see a timeline in the seven letters to the seven churches as sort of a map over history, they were reading a book and they wanted my two cents worth on whether or not I, I saw that. And I said, well, to be honest with you, I actually do. I believe that Ephesus would be um, 60 to 100 AD, the apostolic age. For the next 300 years, Smyrna was under great persecution. 
To be a Christian costs you your life. And then Constantine gets saved. And we have um, the hierarchy established in the church called the Doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Two, two words put together. Nico and laity. Rulership over people. Jesus said, which things I hate. So the church was morphing over time. Started out well. But before 60, 70, 80 years, by the time John writes the book of Revelation in 96 AD, they're already off track. They're in a false doctrine. They've got to be corrected. They've left their first love. I'm interested in the last day's church, which I believe is the church of Laodicea. And I think we've got to be really careful because we as Christians, literally, are living in the wealthiest, prosperous, most powerful nation that has ever lived in the existence of this world. That's true, what I just said. And as a result of that, we gotta really be careful. Um, Let's pick it up, chapter three, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spew you. The word there is literally vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, well, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I don't have need of nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, the, sp- the spiritual pro- poverty versus being literally poor. And here, as the church of Laodicea did their own self-evaluation, they thought things were fine. And the Lord gave his evaluation. He says, no, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, spiritually speaking. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Well, what's that talking about? Well, when we read about trials, it says our trials are like fiery trials, like gold being refined. So if you have a hunk of gold that's got a lot of impurities in it, you put it in a fire, the impurities go away. The more you're in the fire, the more pure you become. So the Lord says what you need is some good trials. (laughs) When's the last time you prayed for a good trial? I don't need to pray for them. They just come all by themselves. (laughs) But it's a necessity because if we don't have that, we can... Lean on something that's not solid ground. And we're, we're only fooling ourselves. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And then I like this. He, he just rebuked them. But he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chastise. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Here's the witnessing verse that everybody uses, but that's not what is, this is not a witnessing verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That's what we share sometimes with people who don't know the Lord. I just open the door of your heart. The Lord's knocking. No, he's talking to a church here that needs to get turned around to get things right. Where's Jesus in this church? He's on the outside trying to get in. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Also, uh, who overcame to sit down with me and my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear. Everybody check it out. Got ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. If you're taking notes, I won't have you turn here. James chapter five, the first three verses says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your misery that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. I'd like to begin to wrap this up this morning with a timely email I received from Warren Smith 
yesterday. I thought, well, the timing of this one's perfect. And so I, I, I printed it out, and um, it has to do with um, the study in the sense that just as the disciples were totally mind-blown by Jesus's um, speaking on, on the Beatitudes and what real religion is versus the outward appearance that was exemplified by the, by the scribes and the Pharisees. And um, I am going to name names, and some people think that as Christians we shouldn't speak out against the hypocrisy of other religious groups or the trends that are there. So while I'm getting ready to read this article, just portions of it, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. This was mind-blowing. This is a bombshell to the disciples. This is what righteousness is all about. Well, we've never heard that before. They've been institutionalized by religion. You know that religion is what keeps most people from coming to a relationship with Jesus? because they think they're already there. So what did Jesus have to say? Well, I can't read all of it, I wish I could, but if you're taking notes, you wanna go a little deeper in this, this is the Lord's assessment of who he was coming up against. Matthew 23, oh, I'll just, I could only point out a handful of verses, 13 through 15. Here's some more woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make a long prayer. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel land and seed to win a proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones. In other words, looking religious. What would you guys think if I ever came out on a Sunday morning and I had a piece of white right across here, around my collar? Oh, how about a nice big robe with a pointy hat on top? This place would probably clear out pretty fast, I'm thinking. <laughs> what is it giving the appearance of? It's an outward appearance that I'm somehow more righteous than you are because I got a white thing on my collar here or I have a robe on or I have a hat on. And with that, people, this is what Jesus said I hate, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the establishment of a priesthood that would give the appearance that this is what religion is all about. It's not about that Jesus did it all on the cross and gave me his righteousness, and he took my sin. That's as simple as it is. And when Jesus said, that's the truth, and it'll set you free. But as soon as you start adding to that with the institutionalism of religion, well, there's the sacraments, and then you have to do this, and of course, can't be saved without good works. The scriptures, these are not gray issues, friends. These are black and white, what the word of God has to say about them. My righteousness is established in one thing and one thing only, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Good pipes word, amen. Now, imagine uh, those that have a heart towards the Lord, but they've been institutionalized in denominationalism, Roman Catholicism, that have all these extra add-ons and to break free from that, to hear the gospel, how liberating that can be for them. But let's be honest here. When I get up and say things like that, um, in their own teachings, if any man says that you can't be saved unless you have good works, let that man be anathema. Roman Catholic Catechism. That's what it says. You know what that makes me? Anathema. Well, I'm going to flip the tables because the Bible teaches just the opposite. What's anathema is adding to or taking away anything that this book says. Good place for an amen. When you learn that truth, Jesus said it will set you free. 
But if you're in that institution, and this is why this is such a mind-blowing revelation. This had never been talked about before until Jesus um, brought it up. So Warren sends me this article, and this is what's happening. There's, there's terminologies that you um, um, may not be for, familiar with, but just the hype that is out there. Um, I want to explain a little bit of uh, what we just give letters to, the NAR. It's the New Apostolic Reformation. Everybody knows what the Reformation was, right? Martin Luther, 500 years ago. And he broke free as a Catholic priest and started um, Lutheranism. Okay, so that's a Reformation. The new apostolic, now we have the, the word apostle, but it's a new one, different from the old one. In other words, keeping up with the times. As the world changes, then the idea is that the church needs to change with it also. So I'd like to um, close this morning by exposing the, some of the leaders of the NAR. And again, please um, do your own research on this, be a brilliant. The New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, Jesus exposed these guys in, in false teaching. And I'm just going to read part. Uh, Warren sent this to me. Uh, it was put out by White House, Lighthouse Trails. Uh, false revival kick-started by Francis Chan. Um, he is one of the key social gospel leaders in the world. Rodney Howard Brown was responsible for the Brownsville revival and also was part of the vineyard movement up in, um, with the holy laughter that took place in uh, Toronto. Uh, Benny Hinn is involved with this, Bill Johnson, um, from Bethel Church in California, and Todd White. And basically, the article is being written just to warn people of what's taking place out there today. And to do so, I have to name names and describe what the new apostolic reformation is all about. And I'll just read a couple paragraphs. There's, there's a word that is being heralded by many Christian leaders today. The word is revival. Whether it's Lou Engel in the call uh, or Bethel Church offspring Jesus culture, Benny Hinn's prophecy about revival in America, Rick Warren's revival of unity, uh, Rodney Howard's holy laughter revival as addressed by Warren Smith, uh, in his uh, booklet, Reports, False Revival Coming, uh, Holy Laughter, and a Strong Delusion. Um, here it is right here. We have them back there. I encourage you to pick up Warren's pamphlet as he deals more extensively with what I'm just touching on right now. Um, they go on to say... Um, there are any number of re- revival calls taking place today within a growing apostate Christianity. The common denominator with most of these so-called revivalists is that they are helping to bring a false revival that is not based on God's word, but is lar- largely based on numerous experiences. Man's ambitions and Satan's deception were warned in, in Timothy that in the last days, they won't endure sound doctrine, but um, will give heed to doctrines of demons in the last days. Lest some reading this still do not understand what the big deal is all about, consider this. At this last conference that they had, Rodney Howard Brown, i.e. Mr. Holy Laughter, uh, came on stage and instructed, catch this, 40,000 plus people, mostly young people at the uh, send to place and he was told them to take one hand and put it in the air and take the other hand and put it on their belly while raising the other in the air. He then called out for the holy fire and the anointing to descend upon them all. One of the things that they believe is the transfer of anointing. It happened here to a very good solid church 
that when the senior pastor died, the first thing they did is went down to Brownsville, caught the fire, and brought it back for a revival. Well, I lived through those years. I didn't see revival. I saw a massive departure. And what they had, because it wasn't the real deal. But it was the thing that was happening at the time. And to, to stay current with what the Holy Spirit is doing, they feel they have to be involved in these things. He then called out holy fire and anointed uh, to descend upon all of them. The Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 11.4 uh, that there's another spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. When you put all the excuses aside, the real question for Francis Chan, because he's by his self being there was endorsing this, are you comfortable with the fact that many of the people that came to Sen 19 because of you suddenly found themselves in a forced position of being experimentally led by someone like Rodney Howard Brown on how to activate the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues? What spirit was Brown imparting on these 40,000 people? Again, mostly young, impressionable people. Um, is it possible it was the same spirit and the same anointing that was pre- present at the uh, Toronto Blessing, which was essentially um, birthed by Brown with his transferable anointing? Please get familiar with that term because you will hear it. Um, trans- that the anointing of someone can be passed on to another person. Now the Holy Spirit imparts, what does it say, as he wills. And he gives one, this one, he gives this, this one here. It's not something that man calls on. So I thought the timing of that was interesting. And I thought, how can I, you know, sort of a heavy study, ending it with, um, you know, pointing out to NAR and just how foolish this is. Um, I think Mary sent me this. And I, uh, in lightening things up as I show it to you this morning, let's put, Put it on the screen. This is this is what um, um, it's one picture with a caption. Uh, Robert asked the televangelist to pray for his hearing after three minutes of violent shaking and trying to push him over backwards. The preacher asked, "How's your hearing?" And Robert replied, "I don't know. It doesn't take place until Tuesday at the courthouse." <laughs> I put it up to show the absurdity and what you guys are up against. And you're gonna be hearing it from people that say, yeah, you gotta catch the latest and the greatest. And they put on, basically, a show. But let me end with this thought. This is how radical it's getting. But how did our Lord Jesus go about doing it? With the crowds, with the healings. Oh, he sat down in a boat and he taught. How did he do it with the Beatitudes, with the disciples? Oh, he sat down. It wasn't showy, it wasn't flashy, but it was the truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, simply teaching the word of God, simply. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Beatitudes, Lord, and um, the simplicity at the complexity that we see in the scriptures. Lord, may your word find a place in our heart today, and um, again, Lord, you've warned us about certain things that will be taking place in the last days. Um, Help us, Lord, uh, follow you as you have laid down the example to follow after you that the mind that was in you should be in us. So bless your word to those of us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The televangelist to pray for his hearing after three minutes of violent shaking and trying to push him over backwards. The preacher asked, how's your hearing? And Robert replied, I don't know. It doesn't take place until Tuesday at the courthouse. (laughs) I put it up to show the absurdity and what you guys are up against. And you're gonna be hearing it from people that say, yeah, you gotta catch the latest and the greatest. And they put on, basically, 
a show. But let me end with this thought. This is how radical it's getting. But how did our Lord Jesus go about doing it? With the crowds, with the healings. Oh, he sat down in a boat and he taught. How did he do it with the Beatitudes, with the disciples? Oh, he sat down. It wasn't showy, it wasn't flashy, but it was the truth empowered by the Holy Spirit. Simply teaching the word of God, simply. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the Beatitudes, Lord, and um, the simplicity at the complexity that we see in the scriptures. Lord, may your word find a place in our heart today. And um, again, Lord, you've warned us about certain things that will be taking place in the last days. Um, Help us, Lord, uh, follow you as you have laid down the example to follow after you. That the mind that was in you should be in us. So bless your word to those of us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.